This week on the show, we are writing our own operating system, part one, continuous integration and quality assurance update from the FreeBSD Foundation, feeling for the NetBSD community is what RubyNerd does, testing wanted for OpenBSD, execute only on AMD64, which sounds very exciting, uh, GCC uses Modular 2 and Rust, do they work on OpenBSD? And Unix is dead, long live Unix from the register. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 492 Feeling for NetBSD, recorded on the 18th of January 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. Want to hear the weekly joke? A man comes to the library. He asks the librarian, do you have any books about paranoia? The librarian goes, they're standing right behind you. Okay, let's move into the headlines. <laughs> Writing your own operating system, for example. That sounds interesting. Yeah, so this is uh, a GitHub IO post uh, from O. O'Connell. And they have part one, writing your own operating system. So they say, I've spent some time learning about operating systems, and I believe my programming has benefited from that. I think I've reached a point where I can... Uh, provide some help to others that want to learn more about the basics of how an operating system works with their processor. And so I plan to write a series about this. I'm new to this, so feel free to email me any corrections or suggestions. In this post, I've written a short bootloader. Uh, my introduction to this topic comes from the operating systems from zero to one, uh, which is a, they have a citation for, uh, which provides a sample bootloader that does not work on their uh, modern Intel system with Ubuntu 20.04. So I'll do something similar uh, as what is outlined there in chapter seven, but that will actually work. The purpose of a bootloader is to load the operating system into memory and execute it. The bootloader is the first executable code that is loaded into RAM from the storage media that is available on your computer, uh, whether that be a hard drive or a floppy disk or a USB key or whatever. This post will describe the floppy approach, which is similar as we do not need to uh, consider disk partitions or anything like that, but has the drawback of very limited storage. Although your bootloader usually should be well small enough to fit on the floppy disk. Although I guess nowadays with EFI, less true. But anyway, uh, when an Intel processor starts, it is initially in 16-bit real mode, which emulates the operating system for the old 8086 architecture for legacy reasons. Uh, this has a couple of important implications for a bootloader. First is that registers used will be in 16-bit versions. For example, you cannot use the 32-bit uh, register EAX or the 64-bit RAX. Uh, and instead, you have to just use the AX register, which refers to the lowest 16 bits of EAX or RAX that would normally be there in the 32 or 64-bit mode. Memory addressing is frequently done by combining uh, two registers, a segment and an offset. This is a quirk of the 8086 architecture. You may see notations such as 0x FFFF colon 0x0000 or ES colon BX. Uh, you will see this in documentation of BIOS interrupt service routines. Um, to obtain the actual address, the segment value 
is left shifted by four bits and added to the offset. Um, basically, each segment is uh, can be up to four bits, uh, which I think is 64K. Uh, and then you have the segment numbers to say which 64K chunk, and then inside that, which bytes. Uh, and again, has references to the pages in the book that uh, describe this. One of the responsibilities of the bootloader or any early kernel code is to switch the processor from that 16-bit real mode into protected mode. Uh, we will not discuss that process here, but the implication is that in real mode, all facilities of the processor are open to us. There is no protection from a malicious bootloader program writing undesirable values to the output ports which are connected to your peripheral devices, and so on. Uh, you can refer to the Intel manual for more information. Anyway, the bootloader program will execute a BIOS interrupt service routine to load a placeholder kernel program from anywhere, uh, from elsewhere, in this case on the floppy disk. We will use interrupt 13 uh, with the AH register set to 0x02. Uh, so that's the upper eight bits of the AX register. And also worth noting that hexadecimal instructions in documentation, such as the Intel manual or the interrupt list are denoted uh, by the 0x prefix or an h suffix. And the mix of the two can be confusing. Uh, so we would say that, you know, ah equals 02h is the same as ah equals 0x02 and so on. Uh, so we they break down that instruction saying they're setting ah to 02h. Uh, then they set uh, the al register to the number of sectors to read, and it must be more than zero the CH register, the lower eight bits of the cylinder number off the floppy disk, the CL to the sector number, which would be between one and 63. The high two bits of the cylinder uh, also fit into that CL value. Uh, the head number is DH and the drive number is DL. Uh, and then the EX colon BX registers hold the data buffer that you're going to put that into. And then when it returns, it will tell you whether there was an error or not. Um, if it was ECC corrected and so on, and what the different uh, outputs could be. So a 512 byte sector is the smallest quantity that can be read into memory at one time. A track is a ring of 18 sectors on this particular type of floppy disk. Uh, floppy disks have two sides. Drive zero refers to the needle needed to read and write the top, while drive one is for the bottom of each of those platters. Um, after all sectors from track zero, head zero have been read, the next sequence of data comes from track zero, head one on the bottom of that disk uh, so that you can avoid turning the disk as much. Uh, the bootloader program can only fill a single 512 byte sector because it's read from track zero, uh, sector zero. So when the BIOS uh, is booting up the program, it's literally only gonna read 512 bytes and that has to be enough to start the computer. So usually rather than the bootloader, that's a bootstrap program that then knows where to find more code to do something a little more complicated. Uh, and so they have an example of the assembly routine they have here to deal with that. Uh, and sometimes that's just read the next 15 sectors or whatever. So for example, um, in FreeBSD, the way the bootloader works is that first 512 bytes has enough to parse the partition table and know which partition is the one you're trying to boot from. Uh, so that usually has an active flag or something. Then it will actually read the first 512 bytes of that partition and let that code take over. And then that code, usually then does something else. For example, on FreeBSD, uh, this will be, if you're using GPT, it'll be the FreeBSD-boot partition. And the first 512 bytes of that partition is literally a small program that just reads the rest of that partition, uh, which has, you know, like 100 kilobytes of code in it that brings up our whole uh, fancy boot system and is able to understand UFS and ZFS and GELI encryption and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the whole chain. Yeah, there's a... 
a whole article on Clara's website that walks through the process uh, of this early boot stuff uh, a little bit more from the perspective of, I just want to know where, where these pieces come from. Uh, whereas this is like, I want to know how the CPU does it. So they're uh, great complements to each other. Uh, so they also have all their code up on a, a GitHub and they have a link to in the docs here uh, and they show how it works. And then they're compiling it all with NASM uh, and feeding it into their virtual machine and looking at it with a hex editor and so on. Uh, so in their case, they're using uh, QMU system I386 to emulate an old 32-bit machine uh, and booting it up and connecting it to the GDB debugger so they can actually see as the registers are changing as they go through single step through all their assembly code. So it's really interesting to see how all that works. Oh, yeah. And especially starting with operating system development in the bootloader can be very daunting. Yes, but at the same time, it's also, this is the computer at its most pure because it has, there's no other facilities. N there's never two things happening at once. It's just set some registers, tell the CPU to do something, get the result. One single step at a time uh, and kind of That's see how it true, goes. Yeah. And there's not, uh, you know, we're basically pretending this is, no matter how big your computer is, we're pretending it's an old 8086 machine. Uh, so it only has one CPU core and, you know, it only has a megabyte of memory or 640 kilobytes of memory even. Uh, <laughs> and so from a starting point, it can be a bit easier to reason about what's happening because there's only one CPU, there's only 640K of memory. Uh, it's just a much more constrained environment. And it means you run into a lot fewer, oh, there's this other stuff you don't know about that's also happening. That was interfering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although nowadays when we're getting to the, you know, the CSM, the, the compatibility mode, where, you know, that BIOS doesn't really exist, but we pretend it does so that your old code can still work. <laughs> but anyway, this uh, will likely be an interesting series to follow, uh, especially, you know, when they start to talk a little bit about how IACTLs work in future articles and so on. So it's very useful. Mm -hmm. But they say, hopefully this will help you uh, have a better understanding of one of the ways that your operating system interfaces with the hardware, this in case via the BIOS. And they have a couple of other teaching operating systems that might also be useful, including, you know, they've already mentioned Minix, but the Helen OS, Tickle, uh, Base Kernel, and Edu OS. And apparently someone's also written a, a Rust version of Edu OS. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yep. So next up is the... FreeBSD Foundation's 2022 in the review, and they're focusing this one on the continuous integration and quality assurance updates. And that's been written in kind of an interview style Q&A with Li Wen Su, one of the foundation's software engineers, uh, because he's deeply involved for a number of years now um, in this area, you know, quality assurance, continuous integration, ring a bell. So first question there is, um, share with us, please, some of what you have accomplished this year uh, and do help us understand both your accomplishments and the foundation's role in supporting this effort. And Li Wen says, in 2022, we're mainly doing two things, maintaining and extending the current continuous integration CI system and working with the workflow group to build a more productive and streamlined workflow so that developers and contributors can leverage the uh, or reuse what they have in the current CI system. So under the realm of maintaining and extending the current CI system, they have continued to add new jobs, such as GCC 12 and PowerPC related jobs, and fulfill uh, development needs in this space. And they also have retired some jobs whose targets are not supported anymore, so why uh, it doesn't make more sense uh, 
to not keep them around anymore. Keep burning up resources mm -hmm. on it, yeah. And they also spent a lot of time working with the contributors and developers to fix the failing test cases and added some more tests. And there's a status uh, page about more details about that. Next question the foundation has, what are your ideas and plans for 2023 and beyond? And Liwen says, here are a few top priority tasks, which include the first is a system for pre-merge testing for developers. The next is a new workflow that can at least be in the stage of public testing. And snapshot and release builds can be generated by the CI system to reduce the release engineer workload. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think the the snapshot and release builds is something that CI is really, really good at. Uh, and it'd be good to have more of that automated so that the the volunteer time we have in those areas can be spent on more testing it and curating it and less the actual mechanics of producing those snapshots. Yep, that's uh, the goal. There are already too many items in the to-do list in work in progress, in open tasks, in the status report. Uh, but if possible, they'd like to help more software adopt FreeBSD in their development CI. That is part of that. And so for the hardware part, uh, they hope to acquire more hardware to fill the space of the broken and discharged machines and have better leverage uh, of cloud resources as well. Yeah, it's been uh, an interesting learning experience for me to see how just like how OpenZFS uses CI um, and kind of what we could be doing with that. Uh, and you know, keeping FreeBSD working in that environment, uh, making sure that, you know, when there are AVI changes that uh, it's not breaking all the CI or, you know, the CI just can't install packages because of the an AVI break and the packages haven't caught up yet and so on. Uh, it'd be interesting to see more done there. And I definitely uh, agree with Lee Wen that seeing other projects adopt FreeBSD in their CI pipeline. So like people that make applications uh, that you know are popular in the ports tree it'd be great if they have freebsd ci on their side you know we saw very positive results from this when when gnome started doing it where now when they commit something and it turns out this breaks on freebsd they get notified within hours of the commit instead of six months later they do a release a month later somebody ports it to freebsd and then they get the report that oh this is broken now uh, and meanwhile the developers moved on seven months ago to some other task in their thing and they're like i don't remember what i was changing there or yeah. or it's way too late <laughs> to change how i'm doing it now whereas if you can report it early maybe it's early enough that it can be re-architected in a way that that will work well for both you know FreeBSD and linux or whatever yeah it's giving and taking for both but yeah if we want more uh other projects to adopt FreeBSD CI as part of their release process we have to make that easy and reliable for them because if the FreeBSD ci bot is always broken in their thing because our package sets are unaligned with the the snapshot or whatever then they're going to turn it off and so yeah we have to both make it easy to set up and make sure that it, it's reliable uh so that people can continue to get that feedback do that and we can see freebsds uh get better testing elsewhere uh on top of all the work we want to do to test our own freebsd stuff more uh and definitely uh, move some of that burden from, you know, you should do all this testing on it before you commit it to while it's under code review, a bunch of this testing can be happening automatically. Uh, yeah, the last part of the interview is uh, they ask if there's anything else you would like to share with them, uh, like the plans or the foundation's role in there. 
And Li Wen says, I would uh, improve FreeBSDIs just at the beginning of his contribution as a technical staff from the foundation. And the essential focus of the foundation's role should be to support any technical needs of the project development. And while currently CI is the most important part, just like the past, uh, they supported the Git migration, they will of course work on anything that can improve the experience of contributing to the project as a whole. Besides CI work, they also spent some time, uh, or his time, <laughs> recruiting and mentoring students to let them know more about FreeBSD and help them contribute. And he also spends time uh, trying his best to initiate collaboration between the project and developers from both corporate and academia. And it's always good to know when someone is interested and willing to help. Also, Li Wen is serving on the FreeBSD core team for the first time. And I have to say, making a good uh, contribution there. Time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have news from Rubenert about NetBSD. Yeah, I think it's more opinion a piece, but yes. Uh, so this piece titled, I feel for the NetBSD community says, we share a common struggle within the BSD community and more broadly among Unix-like OSs that aren't Linux, whether that's Minix and the Lumos or even some of the old big iron Unixes. Uh, Linux is now perceived as the default, meaning anyone presenting an alternative has to justify their existence on top of its features and capabilities. Uh, you know, Linux fans uh, with longer memories probably can recall when this used to be true for them as well. That assumption might be a feature or a bug depending on your perspective. Uh, it also doesn't have to be this way. With a bit more care, you can write portable code and platforms. I mention it in passing, uh, though, because I see similar sentiment even within the BSD community. You know, FreeBSD and OpenBSD get the lion's share of the commentary, which isn't surprising given their uh, install bases. But if you mention NetBSD, you can get the same questions that Linux people ask BSD people. It's like, why do you run that? Why not this other OS? Uh, what's the point of that? And so on. Some of this comes from genuine curiosity. I think there's just as much an opportunity to showcase that OS as there are all those, you know, should I try FreeBSD posts that uh, irritate a certain vocal minority of the community. But I can see how this would grate after a while. NetBSD was uh, Rubinerd's first BSD operating system. And while I've since moved to FreeBSD for much of my work and personal use, I keep some NetBSD machines around as well. It works exceedingly well, especially on older hardware. And even if it's not running the OS, it's probably that I'm using package source on the machine. It's hard to uh, quantify, but whenever I try something new on NetBSD, I can grok the defaults in the syntax to the point where educated guesses work most of the time before even touching their excellent documentation. This hasn't been true, especially on Linux, in a long time. These routine question, uh, questions tell me I need to write more about NetBSD. Oh, yes, please do. We'd like to cover that. And next up, from NetBSD to OpenBSD, they have a testing wanted, execute only on AMD64. That uh, is from the I can't read code department. So uh, over, over at UndeadlyOrg, uh, on the tech mailing list, Theodorat has issued a request for testing of patches for execute only only uh, binaries on AMD64. The message is quite long, but well worth reading in its entirety. For those interested, here's a selected highlight. <clears throat> Some of you have probably noticed activity about X only happening to a bunch of architectures. First ARM64, then RISC-5-64 or RISC-V-64, then HPPA and ongoing efforts with Octeon, Spark64, Sun U only, 
And more of this is going to come in the future. Like past work decades ago, and he supposes continually also, on write X or execute and increasing use of C, the idea is to have code, like text segments, not be readable. Or in a more generic sense, if you protect a region with only prot underscore exec, it is not readable. But most of us have AMD64 machines. Thrilling news. It turns out we can do this fairly modern uh, 64-bit x86 machines from Intel and AMD. Uh, he, or if the operating, uh, if they are operating in long mode, aka AMD64. The CPU needs to have a feature called PKU. The way this works is not 100% perfect, but it is a serious enough hindrance. And as he mentioned, some other architectures have crossed already, but not uh, without little bits of pain, especially in the ports tree where unprepared code is more common. Mostly, this consists of assembly language files that have put read-only data in the .text region instead of into the .ro data. Some people still haven't read the memos from around 1997. <laughs> okay. So they'd like to recruit some help from those of you capable of building your own kernels. Can you apply the following kernel div that's part of the uh, original commit and try the applications you are used to? A list of applications that fail on those uh, way would be handy. Be sure to ktrace-di then and uh, check there is a sigzv segfault, I think, yeah, near the end and include a snippet of that information. If you don't know how to do this, please don't ask for help. Just let others do it. The kernel diff isn't perfect yet because it's less than 24 hours since this started working, but it appears good enough for testing while we work out the wrinkles. Interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. More security. Yeah. Uh, having memory that contains execu executable code that you can run, but you can't actually read the code. Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine that's a, a hindrance for certain types of uh, vulnerabilities where they're trying to string together calls to other code to to do like ROP gadgets and so on. If they can't read the code, then they... Not much to do, yeah. Not, not no <laughs> yeah, information it's, it's harder to figure out what's where and, and how to string it together. Yep. So, interesting. So next up, we have a, a post from Brian Callahan uh, who notes, GCC now includes support for Modula 2 and Rust, but do they work on OpenBSD? So two new language frontends have been added to GCC, Modula 2 and Rust. I think this is great news on both accounts. Having a uh, worth type language in GCC fills my childhood heart with joy. Although I do wish GNU Pascal can one day be revived and main mainlined. <laughs> uh, anyway, the Rust appears to be here to stay. So having more than just one official compiler seemed uh, all but inevitable. I think both languages make sense for GCC and I'm glad to see that they will be coming in the next uh, release with GCC 13.1. So let's see how they fare on OpenBSD. Uh, so, building GNU Modula 2. Uh, I maintain a vanilla repository of GCC that I build daily on one of my OpenBSD machines. This is because I occasionally do development for and in the D and GDC languages. Uh, now that Modula 2 and Rust are mainlined, uh, all I have to do is run git pull on my repo, and it was updated with the new languages, uh, adding M2 and Rust. So, in the uh, enable-languages configure option, and he's got C, C++, D, Fortran, LTO, M2, Objective-C, Objective-C++, and Rust. During the build, I did have one issue uh, when building the Modula 2 code. Uh, there's a plugin called m2rte.so, and if you try to build it with GCC's internal uh, lib 
intl for internationalization you get an error because the gcc build system cannot find that internal lib uh, intl and it's a fairly easy fix uh, with the patch and they send it upstream uh, to fix the c flags to be able to find that internal uh, header file then building uh, GNU Rust, it just built out of the box, didn't need any patches. Looking at running it, I have to admit that I already knew that GNU Modula 2 would work fine. Long-time readers might remember that I uh, reported that about a year and a half ago, and I had just forgotten that GNU Modula 2 uh, happened to work on OpenBSD. Uh, but looking at Rust, he said I had already been in contact with the GNU Rust people when I first heard about it, just to let them uh, know that I had tried building it and it built fine on OpenBSD. I know, and the team is clear to state, that GNU Rust is still in the alpha stage. Knowing that, I chose to disregard those warnings and tried to build some Rust code anyway. Uh, so we used a little Hello World program that you can find in the Rust by Example website. Just, you know, main function that prints Hello World. So then tried to compile it with GCC RS Hello.RS and got back a language. Um, fatal error, GCC RS is not yet able to compile Rust code uh, properly. Most of the errors produced will be GCC RS's own fault and not the crate you're trying to compile. Because of this, please report these to us directly instead of opening issues with the upstream crates. Uh, so you have to uh, set some flags like uh, Rust incomplete and experimental compiler do not use. With that extra flag set, try the compiling again uh, and got back the error unknown macro print line, which I guess I can't <laughs> be too disappointed about. Uh, they did say that it would be broken, and we will just need to keep it on our radar and try it again from time to time. Uh, so instead, he switched the program uh, to return the number 42 and compiled it, and it does, in fact, return error code 42. So I also noticed that in addition to the expected ADA out file, GNU Rust also left behind a 29-byte uh, hello.rox file, which contained uh, some debugging data. I'm not sure what this is, uh, but I'm uh, including it for completeness. Uh, then he has an update here that he was told that the rocks file has to do with the way Rust code is packaged into crates. Oh, okay. And then he also got a working uh, Hello World program by creating uh, an external call to the C library to get printf and then uh, being able to printf a string. And so then when he compiled that, uh, he was able to actually print a Hello World message. And then finally he says uh, about getting pre-built packages. If you'd like a pre-built package of GCC, including C, C++, D, Fortran, Modula 2, Objective-C, and C++, and Rust, uh, then there's one available from the openbsd-amd64 current uh, builds on GitHub, and they have uh, the command to, to package add to get these. Uh, this package will install GCC into user local GNU so that you will not conflict with any other installations of GCC you might have on your system. In conclusion, I'm very excited to see Modula 2 and Rust added to GCC. The fact that they are both ready to go on OpenBSD is a positive reminder of the importance of portability across platforms. I'm excited to see the new life breathed into Modula 2 and the continued success of Rust. Now that both languages have another open source implementation available for all of them, I'm also excited to see more usage of both languages in the BSDs. Uh, now, if only they get back to adding Pascal back to GCC, my life would be complete. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is a, a big step. And at, at some point, you know, if Clang had a front end for Rust, then suddenly it becomes a lot more tenable to start looking at having Rust programs in the FreeBSD-based system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, you know, having seen some of the tools that Alan Summers has ported to Rust in FreeBSD, 
uh, like he has a, a Rust version of GStat, uh, which is quite nice and allows you to do things like at runtime decide which column to sort by. Oh, uh, nice. which can be really helpful to know like which disks are the busy one and so on. And I'm guessing it probably also deals with. I have an NVMe; it can do more than a million kilobytes a second, but the columns aren't that wide by default. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe maybe we should scale and automatically switch some of these units over to megabytes a second uh, or more when, when we're going that fast. Maybe kilobytes per second isn't always the right mm. answer. <laughs> uh, in the past, it was because, you know, nobody's disk was doing more than a couple hundred megabytes a second at most, right? So that's only six digits of kilobytes. Yeah. Uh, but when you get to eight digits of kilobytes a second, maybe it's not the right column. Mm. Oh, good, good. I see more developments happening in the future in this rusty space. Uh, speaking of Rust, um, the register lets us know that Unix is dead. Long live Unix. So the subheadline goes, don't expect to see any more big AIX news. This means the last Unix left is, drumroll, Linux. Their comment, not mine. Um, so they start the article with, it's the end of an era. The register covered uh, last week, uh, IBM has transferred development of AIX to India. Why should IBM pay for an expensive US-based team to maintain its own proprietary flavor of official Unix, uh, or official Unix when it is paid 34 billion bucks for its own freebie open source software flavor in Red Hat? Here at the register, uh, FOSDesk, we felt that it was coming ever since we reported that Big Blue was launching new power servers which didn't support AIX already nearly eight years ago. Even if it was viable coming over the horizon, this is a significant event. AIX is the last proprietary Unix, which was in active development and constitutes four of the 10 entries in the official open group list. That is linked, of course, from the article. Um, within our Oracle, Solaris is in maintenance mode. Almost exactly six years ago, we reported that the next major release, Solaris 12, had disappeared from Oracle's roadmap. HPE's HPUX is also in maintenance mode because there's no new hardware to run on it. Itanium, remember that one, is really dead now. And at the end, that's all HPUX could run on. It's over decades since we reported that HP investigated but canceled an effort to port it to x86-64. So the last incarnation of the SEO uh, group, Xenius, is still around and offers uh, not one but two proprietary Unix variants, SEO Open Server, descendant from SEO Xenix, and Unixware, descended from Novel's Unix. Uh, we note that OpenServer 10, a more modern OS based on FreeBSD 10, uh, has disappeared from Xenius's homepage. It's worth pointing out that the SEO group was the company formerly known as Caldera, I remember those, and isn't the same SEO as the Santa Cruz operation which co-created Xenix with Microsoft in the 1980s. So there used to be two Chinese Linux distros which had passed the open group's testing and could use the Unix trademark, Inspur K UX and Huawei Euler OS. Both companies have let the rather expensive trademark lapse though. But the important detail here is that Linux passed and was certified as a Unix. And it wasn't just one distro, although both were CentOS Linux derivatives. We suspect that any Linux would breeze through become uh, or because many un Unix-like OSs have passed before. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Some of the tests are silly. Mm. <laughs> and so it might actually take a lot of work to get them to pass. And if, you know, people have done it in the past, like Huawei didn't upstream those fixes, then there's still a lot of pain there. But, you know, it also 
raises the question of what's the value of the, of the Unix label, the actual certification. Yeah. Um, but to finish this up, other OSs have passed or probably uh, easily would, though. IBM ZOS is alive and well. Version 2.5 came out in 2021. And in 2022, Big Blue, aka IBM, started offering cloud instances. A ZOS has a Unix compatible environment, which has passed the compatibility tests so officially, it's a Unix, even if it wasn't its original native API. Open, in the name OpenVMS, originally referred to the POSIX compatibility it gained with version 5 way back in 1991. It was first applied to the new version for DEX Alpha CPUs. Last year, VMS software released version 9.2 for x86-64 hypervisors and a single supported box, HPE's DL380. Ever since Windows NT in 1993, I'm really feeling old now, Windows has had a POSIX environment. Now, with WSL, it arguably be, has two of them, and we suspect that if Microsoft were so inclined, it could have Windows certified as an official Unix-compatible OS, and more hell will freeze over. My personal take. Uh, there's more in the article, with a bit of summing up, but I don't see a single mention of free BSD or any BSD in the whole. Uh, well, they have they they mentioned it in the scope part about Zinus. Right, that's uh, that. And yeah. then near the end here, they say, uh, which means that the last officially trademarked commercial Unix is Apple's macOS 13, which underneath is a proprietary GUI layer, as mostly an open source OS called Darwin, uh, with its ZNU kernel. Uh, is based on mock and it's in kernel Unix server, which is derived There's from FreeBSD. Yeah, okay. My worldview is okay now again. <laughs> so as of... But they say, yeah. Yeah, so uh, as of 2023, open source really has won. There are more Unix-like OSs than ever and some very un-Unix-like OSs, which are highly compatible with it. But the official line is, to all intents and purposes, dead and gone. All the proprietary commercial Unixes are now on life support that will get essential bug fixes and security updates only, and maybe, uh, but we won't uh, be seeing any new major releases. Time to send flat. <laughs> yeah. But yes, uh, Unix is still there. It's just, it's not commercial Unix anymore. Uh, things like FreeBSD and Linux have really won uh, because why would you pay for something proprietary when you can get something that's open and has better support than you're going to get uh, from you know, a company that's it's like, we still have this, but it's only on life support. So we're going to do the bare minimum versus uh, an actively developed open source operating system like FreeBSD or whatever. You can get support from people that actually want to keep it growing uh, and keep it alive. ESD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. 
All right, very nice. So it's time for feedback and questions. Uh, the first one is Kevin this time with a little reference for us about the advent of computing. So this goes, hi, BSD Now crew. A year or two ago, Alan mentioned the advent of computing podcast, and I've been a happy listener of both shows ever since. Cool. This week, Sundays, January 8th, host Sean has, hopefully that's correct, covered the origins of Berkeley software distribution in episode 99. Check it out at the link adventcomputing.com. Thanks for the great show, Kevin. Kevin, nice. Thank you for getting uh, the word out to us that BSD was mentioned there. We definitely should give it a listing or listening. Then we have ILO uh, with a thanks. And this reads like the following. Hello, Benedict and co. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'm too often on this show for reasons. Anyway, thanks for the last episode this year. Oh, here we go. Love to listen to your voice. Oh, I appreciate that. And keep on the good work for the next year. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you like it. A happy new year. Much health. And may all your wishes come true. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. I can definitely return those. Uh, yeah, I, that uh, last year or last episode of the year recording was kind of, you know, spontaneous. Uh, but I wanted to cover a couple of things and mention people and give uh, head nods to them. So I think that uh, we got a couple of uh, people mentioning that or on IRC people get me a couple of notifications. So I think that was well received. Um, that seems like the end of this episode. If you definitely want to be in our feedback and questions in a future episode, then send us a feedback message to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That could be a question to us that we try to answer or something that you found on the internet that's BSD related and we haven't mentioned yet or any other topics you want to mention or some story of your own, link to your own blog, whatever it is, a how-to, anything could be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv, almost anything. Uh, and yeah, this may be a future episode content. And note to myself, find better jokes for beginning of episodes. <laughs> Maybe people can send you some good ones. Yeah, I guess then I have to do this regularly on every show. Start with a joke. <laughs> anyway, we leave you for now and we'll be back with another episode next week. See you next time.